I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17. As we come to Romans 1, 16 and 17, uh, we come to the final part of the introduction of Paul's letter to the Romans where he uh, gives us the thesis for the entire letter. I've had the privilege of helping my daughters work recently work through their English papers and we learned all about thesis statements. Still don't know what they are, but uh, there's one in Romans chapter 1. Uh, here Paul puts forward uh, his premise about the gospel of Jesus Christ, clearly, in verses 16 and 17. And then throughout the rest of the letter, he will explain it, prove it, defend it, in chapters 1 through 11, before calling the Romans to obey the gospel, Romans 12 through 15, and then join him in uh, taking the gospel to the West, to Spain, in Romans chapter 15. Fundamentally, this thesis statement in verses 16 and 17 is, if I state it clearly, I think this is it, the gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. Now what happens in verses 16 and 17 is through a series of uh, continuous and progressive unfolding of reasons, he tells us more and more about it. And he marks out these reasons with a clear word in most English Bibles. It's the word for. Okay, there are three occurrences of it in verses 16 and 17. Look in your Bible for these. Verse 16, for, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for... It is the power of God for salvation. And then verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Each one of these four words uh, begins a new answer to three why questions. Why is Paul ready to preach the gospel in Rome? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? And why is the gospel the power of God? If you have a handout, you know those are my three points to the sermon. We're going to follow Paul's reasoning as it unfolds. And we'll consider how Paul answers these three questions. And I think in the process, we will have exposed before us the power of the gospel of God. Now, in looking at these three questions and answering them from Paul, it's my hope that uh, it will not just be an academic theological exercise, but... My prayer is that God will give each of us new strength to deal with one of our oldest and most challenging failures. The failure to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This failure has plagued the church from the very beginning. Think of Simon Peter. Think of John Mark and their Infamous failures to be ashamed of the gospel. And so in this sermon, we'll put the spotlight on this failure. To be ashamed of the gospel this morning. But we won't hammer with the anvil of guilt and manipulation this morning. Okay, perhaps there's uh, 
Uh, perhaps we should feel guilty about this, being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful, splendid message that saves our souls. People around, perhaps we should feel guilty about that, but I've chosen to do this a little bit differently today. Instead, it's my hope that we will leave with a zeal to proclaim the gospel in our streets and our neighborhoods by examining Paul's deep and joyous confidence in it. So may what Paul had, what he believed, work like a magnet for our souls today. Drawing us into it. Igniting within our whole being a zeal to proclaim such a wonderful message of salvation through Jesus Christ. So as we begin, we look at these three why questions of Paul that expose the very commitments of his heart. Starts with number one, why is Paul ready to preach the gospel in Rome? In verse 15, Paul had stated that he was eager or ready to proclaim the gospel in the city of Rome. And then at the beginning of verse 16, he gives us the reason why he's eager to preach the gospel. Look at the beginning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see, Paul is ready to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of it. He says, I am not ashamed. That's why he's ready. Those are four easy words to say, to claim, but they're much harder to live. And here Paul deals with the temptation, I think, that every Christian experiences. Every Christian will at times be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, why is that the case? I, I think we could point out a whole host of reasons to come to mind as I'm studying Romans. We might be ashamed of the gospel because sometimes we're standing before what we would deem to be significant or important people. But I want to learn from what Paul is saying here about the city of Rome. Paul had proclaimed the gospel in various towns and cities all throughout Palestine, Asia Minor, Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. He proclaimed this gospel of Jesus Christ, all these towns and villages and cities, but now we're talking about Rome. Right? Rome was the leading city of the world, the most significant and important city in the ancient world. Yet, Paul was eager. To see what the gospel could do there as well. He knew that it could work with any people in any city. Including such an important one. I think other times we're ashamed of the gospel because its message is highly confrontational. I'm just uncovering some of like my own reasons here. Sometimes being ashamed of the gospel. We're, we're afraid to proclaim the good news because it starts by establishing the bad news. Right, That people, the people who we're trying to reach with this message, we start by saying you're condemned by sin, you're certain to experience hell, and you are under the wrath of God. It's like the doctor given the assignment to go into the room to tell the patient that, that, that has a terminal sickness, that, that he has a disease that's going to kill him. It's a challenging message, but, it, but Paul is ready to fulfill his debt to all Gentiles in Rome because he's not ashamed of it. Okay, but that leads us to another question, number two. We're going pretty quickly so far, don't get used to it. Okay. Number two, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? This question is answered in the second half of verse 16. So look at verse 16. For 
it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here simply stated, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that it contains divine power. And uh, we're going to take some time to meditate upon that this morning. The gospel contains divine power. Now the way we're going to do that is I'm going to just make three simple statements to you. If you're taking notes, you'll see them in the handout that was in your bulletin. If not, you can just follow along. First, the gospel is described here as the power of God. The word power is the Greek word, and I don't normally do this from the pulpit, but I hear this word being used from time to time among some of you. It's the Greek word dunamis. Right? And we like this word because it sounds like dynamite. Okay? Uh, Although this word sounds like dynamite, drawing a parallel is not appropriate here. It is anachronistic, meaning you're reading something modern or contemporary back into an ancient text that there was no dynamite in the first century that I'm aware of. Further, this is not appropriate because the dynamite is rarely constructive. It is destructive. The power that is talked about in this passage, however, is effective energy. So when Paul uses the word power of the gospel, he's talking about its ability to do something, not to destroy something. Right? The gospel is effective power. More specifically, what he says in this text, it is God's ability to do something. This is the ability of the one and only supreme almighty God. This power that we're talking about in this sermon belongs to God. It emanates directly from him, the creator of the universe. No wonder Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. It is power from God. But we continue. Paul knew that the gospel was God's power to do something, but but he gets more specific. In verse 16, we learn that it leads to or accomplishes, it brings salvation. That's the second statement on your handout. The gospel brings salvation. Now when Paul uses the word salvation and its related verb to save in his writings, he's primarily speaking of the rescue or the deliverance of God's people from the consequences of sin. Okay, so that's what salvation is. Salvation is deliverance from God's present and eternal wrath against sin. Consequences of sin. Now a few verses later in the text, in Romans 1 and verse 18, we will see that God's wrath, his holy anger, is turned against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See that in verse 18? God's wrath is turned against uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of sin. That's the condition that every man and woman outside of Christ faces. God's holy anger turned against their sin. And then still later in Romans 2 verse 5, you flip over there and you can see that sinners, the text describes it this way, sinners are storing up wrath 
for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so when we talk about the the gospel bringing salvation, we need to fundamentally know what it brings salvation from. And the answer is God's wrath. And men and women, there could not be a worse possible fate for someone to experience than to be under the holy anger of the uh, God of this universe. Yet the gospel is God's power to rescue us, to deliver us, to save us. The gospel can do everything our human souls need for now and eternity. And there is no other way to be saved, right? Acts 4.12 says it so clearly. Just listen to the words of this holy text of scripture it says and there is salvation there's our word and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be what saved the gospel of jesus is the only way That God saves anyone. No wonder Paul was not ashamed of this. The gospel is uniquely God's saving power. Okay? And this is true as we keep reading. For everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So on your notes, I, I give a third statement about the gospel. And it's the gospel saves everyone who believes The way God's powerful gospel saves is through faith, by believing or putting full trust in it. And it can save anyone who believes. There's no discrimination for Jew or Gentile. No one is excluded by the nature of the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any person who puts his or her trust in God's gospel will be saved. So we can say with confidence to any person that we're proclaiming to the, gospel, the gospel to, it doesn't matter where you are from. It doesn't matter what you did. If you believe this, you will be saved. Paul, again, is not ashamed of this because... And he's ready to proclaim it because it could save everyone who believes in the city of Rome. Wow, can't wait to get there. It could save everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone who believes. The city of Rome. But we have one more question to answer today. That's the third question, and that's what verse 17 is about. And that is, why is the gospel... God's saving power. And to answer this, we look to the text again, verse 17. For in it, the gospel, is the the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is God's power for salvation 
because it unveils or uncovers the righteousness of God. Okay. But when we get to this phrase, the righteousness of God, we come to what might be the most important phrase in the entire book. Maybe the Bible. The righteousness of God. And so to understand such an important subject, we'll consider three questions about God's righteousness this morning. Okay, first question. You just got to ask this, right? You got to just get right to it. What is the righteousness of God? Might sound like a simple question, right? Until someone looks you in the eyeballs and asks you to explain it. If your neighbor right next to you in the chair right next to you says, well, what is the righteousness of God anyway? What would you say? Well, that's a hard question, right? In some ways. But being in Romans is a good place to start. By the way, that question was the righteousness of God. I've got books in my library that are written on that question. Scholars, theologians write whole books trying to answer this question. Okay, So we're going to try to answer it in the next two minutes. <laughs> what is the righteousness of God? Being in Romans is a good place to start because Romans con- contains the highest concentration of righteousness language anywhere in Paul's letters. Righteousness words are used, at, by my count, 56 times in the book of Romans. That's over half of the occurrences that you find in all of Paul's letters. So this is a book about righteousness. And the phrase, the righteousness of God, or its equivalent, is found eight times in Romans and only one time in the rest of Paul's letters. This is a letter about the righteousness of God. Now when someone speaks of the righteousness of God, foundationally, he is describing... Okay, here I'm going to answer it. All the other stuff is just, you know, fluff, okay? Here's what it is. What is the righteousness of God? It is who God is. The righteousness of God is who he is. It is a part of his being. The Greek words that are normally translated here are usually translated in English with words like righteous, righteousness, or just, or justice sort of language. So fundamentally, if I'm answering the question, what is the righteousness of God? It it relies on this fact. God is right and just. He is inherently and perfectly just. Further, because he is always right and always just, he has utmost integrity in his judgments. So when we speak of the righteousness of of God, we're we're speaking of his rightness in being and in judgments. And he is inherently righteous. He is inherently just, perfectly so. Both in being and in the judgments that he pronounced. He's always right in his judgments. Okay, but we're going to continue to deal with this question as we move on to the other. Okay, so the second question we've got to deal with is how does God display his righteousness in scripture? Now this question springs directly from Romans 1.17 because if you're looking at your text it says for in it the gospel he reveals the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, So 
There's an answer in Romans that we're going to get to. The gospel is revealing the righteousness of God. But uh, we, we, we stop and we ask this bigger question first. How does God display his righteousness in scripture? And to answer this question, I think it's important to go where Paul the apostle would go. If Paul is going to describe or talk about the righteousness of God, I think he would use his Bible. Right? He has a certain understanding of the righteousness of God and how God displays that righteousness. And the way you would find this is by looking at his Bible, the Old Testament, to learn and discern what is the righteousness of God. How does God display that righteousness? And when you go to the Old Testament, you come up against a little bit of a challenge because according to one of my friends who preached on this passage recently, he said there are just short of 1,300 verses in the Old Testament about righteousness. Okay, so we're going to look at all of them this morning. No, 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 no. But we will consider several. And we're going we're gonna to look at some of these Old Testament texts that not only describe God's righteousness, but answer this question, how does God display his righteousness to humanity? How does he reveal his justness to us? And there are two strands of biblical evidence that the Old Testament articulates. Okay. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that God reveals or uncovers his righteousness is through judgment. He righteously judges sinners from that. We know he's righteous. As God righteously judges and condemns sinners, his righteousness is revealed to humanity. And I think this is probably the way most of us perceive God's righteousness. So I'll only look at a few texts with you that uh, talk about this. And um, I've put them on the PowerPoint here just for sake of time. You could write down the reference. You could look them up this week. But there is a strand of text in the Old Testament that would uh, clearly demonstrate that one of the ways God reveals his righteousness to humanity is through judging sinners. Okay, and let me just read these to you. Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Here in Psalm 7, David says that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. He sharpens his sword. He has his bow bent, ready to launch fiery arrows at the sinner. This passage talks about God bringing down righteous wrath on sinners. This is the revelation of his righteousness. The psalmist considers the judgment of the wicked. When he does this, he, he knows that he should give praise to God for his righteousness. Judging wicked people is a way God demonstrates righteousness. We continue, Psalm 9, verses 5 through 8. You have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. 
The enemy come to, uh, came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities are rooted out. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. It's our key word for righteousness. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. In Psalm 9, David speaks of God's judgment on sinners and his ruling in righteous judgment. In other words, bringing forth justice and God's judging sinners are equivalent in this passage. One more, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. Hear the prayer of Hannah, at the very end of her prayer, she says this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This final verse of Hannah's song or prayer, she speaks of the Lord breaking in pieces and thundering from heaven and bringing righteous judgment on the ends of the earth. And so God demonstrates his righteousness through punishing and condemning sinners. Right? But when we think about that, how is that good news for us? God is perfectly right. And one of the ways he demonstrates that is by judging and condemning sinners. How's that good news? The answer is, uh, the only way this is good for us is that we can be confident that we have a judge who will always get it right. Okay. We want a judge like this. Don't you want, when you're in the court of law, don't you want a judge who's going to get it right? Yeah, now, but, but the problem for us is, our problem is we are all guilty. We're all sinners, filthy sinners, deserving God's wrath. A bad verdict. This is the bad news for us because we're all sinners. And that understanding of how God reveals his righteousness in the Old Testament, however, only captures one nuance of what the Old Testament says about God's righteousness. And there's another strand of biblical text that point to a second way that God reveals his righteousness for us. Okay, so the other way that God reveals his righteousness is through saving. And there are some Old Testament texts that correlate saving with righteousness. Righteousness and saving okay, are correlated together. And we'll consider a few of these. Now, the first one, I don't have on the PowerPoint because it's too long. So you're going to have to turn there. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And uh, we're just going to work through some of these. Let me... Oh, yeah, I still got all kinds of time. <laughs> psalm 51. Why don't you turn there? Of course, this is the psalm. We, we read a portion of the psalm at the beginning of the service. This is a psalm where David, who's been caught in his adultery and murder, finally... Ask God to help him. And this has righteousness language in it. And I want you to see this. Okay, so Psalm 51, 3 through 14. What, you say, well, what in the world are we doing here? Okay. God reveals his righteousness through judging sinners. But these texts will show God reveals his, judge, his righteousness through saving as well. 
So we look at Psalm 51, verse 3. It says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified. It's righteousness language. That you might be justified, God, in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now... Pay close attention to verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He's a murderer. Deliver me from the guilt of this murder. O God. O God of my salvation. And if you do that, my tongue will sing aloud of your what? Righteousness. Now, if God's righteousness is only revealed... By him judging and condemning sinners. Why would David say this? Why would he say, God, if you will deliver me and create a clean heart in me, I will go around telling everyone and singing the praises of your righteousness. I think it's because David understands that God's righteousness can also be demonstrated through his saving people. Some other text, Psalm 71, and I'll just read through this. You don't have to turn there, it's here, but you could write it down. Psalm 71, and these are going to get clearer than Psalm 51. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. It's in God's righteousness. He has to be delivered and rescued and saved. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. In this psalm, we begin to see the psalmist connecting God's righteousness with his rescuing or delivering people. We see it again in Psalm 98. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness in the house of Israel. All the ends of the Lord uh, earth have seen the salvation of our God. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
here as well, righteousness is equated with salvation. And the psalmist connects God's acts of salvation with his acts of righteousness. There's a text in Isaiah that says it quite clearly. Isaiah 46, verse 13. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I'll put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Here, salvation is equated with righteousness. Isaiah 51. I could go to, again, I said how many? 1,300? I'm not going to do them all. This will be the last one. Isaiah 51, verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. I won't keep reading, but this is the point I'm trying to make. In the Old Testament, there's a strand of biblical text that equate God's righteousness with him acting to save people. So as Paul would understand and know his Old Testament scripture, he would know this. He would know that the righteousness is on display of God is on display when he punishes sinners, but it's also on display when he saves people. That is, uh, God is right and always just, and that's on display when he judges people and when he saves people. The Old Testament has this multifaceted view of God's righteousness that includes both the fact of who he is and what he does in judgment, whether that's condemning or saving. But that leads us to one last question. And the question is, how can God justly deliver sinners? Not like how, how can that be right? You're saying that God delivering a guilty person shows his justness? Well, how could that be, right? Good question, right? I mean, I made it up, so good question. <laughs> how can God justly deliver or rescue sinners and i want to answer this question in two ways from the old testament and then romans okay we'll do this quickly first in the old testament god can justly deliver sinners through a righteous servant who will come to deliver them we're going to consider Isaiah 53. And, and let me just ask you, I, I think I asked you only to turn to one text today. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And let me just read a few verses here. In this passage, Isaiah describes how God's righteous servant will make it possible for God to justly deliver unjust people. All right, and I saw something in this text uh, and I, I, I just preached for Isaiah 53 to you a little while ago. I saw something I hadn't really picked up before when it comes to the idea of righteousness. Isaiah 50, uh, 53 here, and we look at verse 3. Just We're, we're going to kind of reflect on this text again for a second. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But regarding this righteous servant, 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Crushing the son for our sin. Look at verse 11 though. Out of the anguish of his soul, God shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted, what? Righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah says here that God will bring down his wrath upon the righteous servant with the result being that many will be accounted righteous because of him. He will bear their sin and the consequences of it and God's wrath. And so how can God justly deliver a sinner? It's only through a righteous servant. Now, there's another way you could answer this question. And we could do so in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Romans 3, 21 through 31. And I won't preach all of that. When we come to the New Testament, we come to a different word that explains how God can justly deliver sinners. That word is Gospel. Gospel. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God can righteously save sinners. And in this way, God displays his righteousness by saving people through the gospel. Romans 1.17 says, In it, the gospel, the righteousness of of God is revealed. And in Romans 3, 21 through 31, he takes time to show us how a righteous God could make people righteous through the sacrifice of the second son, or second person of the divine being, Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue in Romans 1 and verse 17, Uh, We look at uh, how God reveals his saving power in the gospel. And he comes to this phrase, uh, from faith to faith. Okay, And I, I think what he's doing here is he's emphasizing that the way God can deliver unjust people is through faith in the gospel of Christ. Uh, When you get to the phrase, from faith to faith, you come to a challenging little phrase. Uh, One commentary that I did make it through said that there were 27 different ways to take it. Okay, and I read through every one of those. There are different ways you could take it, but to to just make this simple, I I think that he's saying this sort of thing comes altogether by faith, or more specifically from Christ's faith or faithfulness to our faith. He then concludes by quoting an Old Testament text, Habakkuk 2.4, that shows that this is how it's always been. 
Faith is required for people to be delivered. Paul feels, I think, Habakkuk 2.4 establishes a general maxim that's true for both the Old and New Testament, and that is righteous people will live eternally by faith. So the Old Testament confirms personal faith gives life. Today we've considered in this sermon why Paul was ready and not ashamed of the gospel. And we have learned from uh, Paul's deep conviction of soul. He loved the gospel because it is God's saving power for everyone who believes. How could he not tell other people about that? This week I was listening to an elderly preacher that I really respect. I respect him for his evangelistic zeal. His love to talk about the gospel. And he was reflecting on an old song that I had forgotten about. And I want to read you the words of the song. If you're a teenager here, just humor me. It might be familiar, but for most of our audience, I think it will be helpful. The song is, I love to tell the story. I'll read you portions of this. I love to tell the story of unseen things above of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat, which seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard The message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Is it true about you? We've talked about the gospel all day today. You're hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory... I sing the new, new song. Twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. This week, may we all head to the streets and our neighborhoods and places of employment and schools with the gospel of God's saving righteousness that comes through the righteous servant, Jesus Christ. I told you I wouldn't use the anvil of guilt to try to motivate you regarding not being ashamed of the gospel. But that I would pray that God would use Paul's great love to proclaim it and his confidence in it to inspire you this week. To not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray 
that Colonial Baptist Church would be filled with men and women, boys and girls, who love to tell the story. I pray that this church would have pastors and deacons and Bible study teachers, children's workers, members who love to tell the story, who aren't ashamed of the gospel because they know something, because they know it is divine power for salvation for everyone who would believe it. Would we believe that you long to reveal your righteousness to people? Not only through judgment, but through saving them. Lord, give me greater confidence in this message. May I love to proclaim it. And would you do the same for my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen.